Okay, and it's now recording. So, this is Sophie Scott, and I am speaking to Professor John Morton, who is probably one of the most significant figures in psychology, and certainly cognitive psychology, but the development of lots of different ideas within cognitive psychology over the last few decades. And if I remember correctly, didn't you once write a letter saying that all psychology would be cognitive psychology one day. You, you opposed the creation of the cognitive psychology section. I did. The DPS, because I, everything I should for, be. I'd forgotten that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was just wondering, John, if, <laughs> if we could start at the beginning and sort of, if you could, however you'd like to do this, but if you'd yeah. take us into how okay. you got into studying psychology. Sure. Okay. I knew nothing about psychology when I went to university. Uh, I went to Cambridge to do natural sciences, physics, chemistry, mathematics. Uh, it's a bit uh, tedious in a way. A lot of it was a repetition of what I'd done at school. And it wasn't taught very well, as I discovered later. I did, didn't actually understand what science was. Uh, I'd learned a lot of lots of things, but I didn't have a feel for it. I couldn't manipulate it. Uh, and I was very dissatisfied with the course. And I had a bit of luck. One day, one evening, I was uh, looking for some examination papers on mathematics for supervision um, from last year's exams. And I opened this enormous volume uh, in the middle, and it fell open at a page where it said psychology. And I started reading the questions, and I thought to myself, I want to know the answers to these questions. And so the following morning, um, I went round to the psychology department and saw Oliver Zangwill there, and he was very surprised and delighted as I'd come along, but there was nothing I could do about it because, <clears throat> at the time, because you don't do psychology in Cambridge until the, until your third year, so I had to carry on with another year and a half of tedium, uh, which was really painful, and I got, I got, <laughs> I got to get rather depressed, <laughs> I must say, uh, and then uh, there was a special summer term, a six-week summer term, uh, that people like myself had in, in psychology. And I went into the first lecture wondering what on earth it was going to be, and suddenly found I was at home. My mind felt at home. It could expand into the territory. I felt I belonged there. Uh, there was something about the fact that there was so much that wasn't known and that the structuring wasn't, wasn't uh, set. Uh, a big contrast with physics and chemistry. And I loved that environment right from the very beginning and, and had all kinds of 
questions. I must have been in either a delight or a nuisance to the lecturers, depending as to <laughs> what their attitude was towards um, uh, toward, towards interruptions of, of lectures. Um, the I think the first the first lecture was actually on on uh, human performance, and it was by Alan Welford. But the uh, there were some wonderful lecturers, uh, uh, Richard Gregory, for example, who uh, enthusiastically got the class into his into his experimental room, and told us about his next experiment or his current experiment, and we all had to take part in it, and produce ideas. Uh, uh, about what he was thinking, and uh, so he, he welcomed he welcomed debate and criticism. Uh, <coughs> I um, for some reason didn't do very well in my exam. Uh, ended up with a two-two, which was uh, seemed likely to condemn me to the the uh, uh, the countryside. And uh, I wanted to continue uh, in in psychology, and the only since since I only had a two two, I couldn't get uh, a grant to do a PhD. So uh, the only job which was available was with the clothing and stores experimental establishment in Farnborough. This is a uh, uh, an ergonomic effect, effectively an ergonomics uh, ergonomics lab. And I was uh, I, I went uh, uh, to be interviewed there, and uh, I was just about to accept them when <coughs> I got a phone call from from Zangwill uh, to say that there was an opportunity uh, at, at Reading with a PhD to do a PhD, and was I interested? And it turned out there was uh, a young man who'd got his girlfriend in the family way, and couldn't afford to, uh, uh, didn't want to proceed um, on a graduate student's stipend uh, with the whole family, so he was going off and doing another job. And it was rather crucial because there was a piece of applied research on uh, reading. It was a, a test of a reading efficiency course. and. This research has been contracted by Maggie Vernon, professor at Reading, uh, with the post office. And the post office wanted to know whether or not they could get their executives' reading speed up by use of this course. So it needed investigating. Um, and it had all been planned uh, that when the experiment was, was about to begin, because we were going to in, into observe the the running of a particular course which started in December so there's only a month or so to, to get moving so uh, I, I loved this idea and uh, rapidly devised some ad hoc tests um, a test of, 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 of reading reading ability and uh, got stuck into this uh, the interesting thing about it was that <coughs> uh, some people uh, improved who had only been to one of the twelve sessions. 
and this is a bit strange because uh, what the people who ran the course claimed was that what you had to do was train eye movements uh, a bit all a bit bizarre as if if you get your eye movements right then internal processing would be all right it just didn't make any sense to any sense to me whatsoever uh, and uh, the I wrote it up uh, with my qualifications and uh, and then started thinking about what it what it might be and my my reasoning went that pretty much it must be something which people it must be knowledge use of knowledge that people already had which they were recruiting in reading for the first time so thinking about what that knowledge might be it became obvious since I, I had known something about uh, information theory uh, during my course at Cambridge and I carried on being interested in that and um, was aided and abetted a bit by Ted Crossman who was a lecturer at Reading who I talked to a lot and uh, thought right then what this knowledge is going to be the properties of language and so I started designing experiments which looked at the effect of probability on word perception and that worked as it should have done other people were at the same time elsewhere um, in, in America at that, at that time were doing uh, doing research on the effect of probability on uh, perception of um, spoken language largely under the direction of George Miller as I remember uh, and this was a little little niche that I found for myself I followed up um, that first experiment with looking at continuous language processing and so got um, text with orders, uh, orders of approximation to English some of which I still remember, like why the persuade that the turn had secretly sales isolation. She'd been <laughs> it's ridiculous to, to have remembered this, but I scored so many so many sheets of people reading these things out loud. Um, and and as one might expect, showed that uh, people were much faster reading uh, approximations to English and the, the, the closer the approximation, the, the faster they were, uh, the fewer eye movements they had, the fewer regressive movements of their eyes, everything that you would expect. And um, uh, so that was, that was in the end quite straightforward. Uh, there, rem there remained the problem of how to conceptualize this. And basically for me, the um, crucial uh, thing was when I was doing the first experiment on uh, uh, effects of word probability, effects of context on uh, on word percep word perception. Uh, I had first of all I got the the stimuli by going round. Uh, 
basically women's women's halls of residence from room to room with a list of a hundred sentences and say, can you complete this sentence? Like, coming in, he took off his, or uh, she was very happy to receive the, and so on. And so we got these uh, hundred um, responses. And so these were then the, the stimuli that I used. And it turned out that these stimuli, the reading behavior followed the, followed the, what called the generation behavior. So, uh, and as I was, as I was creating the stimuli, I had people generating, given the context, and in the main experiment, they were perceiving using the context. So, it was the same knowledge inside. And so it must be, must be the same system, just being driven by either, in the one case, by uh, uh, the context alone, or in the other case, by context and stimulus. So there had to be a means for interaction between <laughs> context and stimulus, which had to be inside, inside the head. Mm. It was, it couldn't be. It wasn't in the behaviour. It was. Yeah. There had to be some mechanism there, and so the notion of a logician just grew quite naturally from, from that that way of thinking, and. Uh, that turned out to be rather a, rather a good idea. It does seem to have been one of the more enduringly strong claims or positions or models, you know, the idea in in psychology. So I was showing you a textbook just before we started describing it as the, the patriarch yeah. um, of all models, really, of reading. Could you just say a little bit more about logogens and what you think that... why why you think it's been so enduring? Oh, why has it been so enduring? You're allowed to say, because I think because I'm right. It's, because it's rare, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think one of my favourite papers uh, was, was titled Morton Was Right After All, <laughs> which was a test of, of uh, some aspect of, of, of logogens. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what I believe now. Uh, I suppose um, a lot of things in psychology in my experience, can be quite vulnerable to exactly what method you're using. So some, you know, there's been that general oh, yeah. conclusion over the last few years that a lot of, you know, verbal working memory and visual, sorry, visual working memory and visual imagery are probably one and the same thing, but they've been studied by different people doing different experiments, calling it different names yeah. and attributing different things to it, but it's probably just different parts of the same psychological construct. Yeah. Um, and logogens doesn't seem to have gone through that kind of difficult discovery from the out from your first description of it. It's been sort of taken off in different directions, but it seems to be robust to method, for example. Uh, not totally, no. Oh, interesting. Um, it depends on what the stimulus variations are. One in particular, I remember uh, I was having what seemed like a an, an, a, a data argument with Leslie Henderson on on morpheme structure and and uh, facilitation, and it turned out that this was entirely due to method that he was using lexical decision, and I was using perception. Right. Uh, and the lexical decision, of course, is 
much more complicated, mm. almost conscious task, where uh, uh, well, a, a perception. That, well, as I say that, I, I, I question it. However, let's let's go ahead. Mm. Let's push on. But the um, the word word recognition, uh, looking at sub, uh, just super threshold stimuli, is something which removes uh, a lot of decision making apparatus from 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 operation. Uh, it seems, and. Uh, where where lex lexical decision task is uh, is a bit more constructive. Mm. Anyway, that that so so that they, they don't always get the same results uh, if you, if you use if you use, a if you use lexical like decision task. Uh, yeah. And um, but the risk of harping on about this, but that was part of your PhD research was developing this model. Yeah. That's quite a phenomenal achievement in a PhD. <laughs> Something that then, decades later, I mean, just it wasn't. It wasn't. As, it wasn't as well articulated. Uh, I can't actually remember now how far I, how far I'd taken it. I think. I think I it got to the the essentials. Because mm. um, and and treason at around about the same time, at exactly the same time, in fact, was looking at dichotic listening, and she was talking about dictionary units. Mm. So it's, it was the same, same thing, but didn't develop it theoretically. Yeah. She went on to do other things, uh, but she could well have done. Uh, but that's the same idea, basically. And what did you do next? What I did next was, uh, well, the the fates produced the ideal job for me. <laughs> A vacancy at the applied psychology unit. And um, to work on uh, certain aspects of speech recognition, and uh, so uh, I went up. Well, uh, first of all, I I read everything that they'd done on the topic, and designed a few experiments, follow-on experiments. So I was extremely well prepared. I say this because it seems to me such an obvious thing to have done. And later on, when I was interviewing people for jobs, they would come along and they'd say, oh, and oh, what do you experiment on? To me. And I thought, you know, if you have that little interest in doing a bit of research on the place that you're hoping to work at, uh, forget it. Where I had, I went, I, I arrived with a three-year program. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, worked with, uh, largely with Alan, a man called Alan Carpenter, you, you may not have heard of. I'm not certain that I have. Mm. But can you briefly describe who was at the unit when you got there? I should also maybe say, briefly describe who was on the psychology course. Yeah. There was Anne Treesman, Pat Rabbit. What, when you were a student? Yeah. Blimey. Um, Oh gosh, I've gone forgotten some of the other names now. Was but Jeffrey Gray there? Was he no, a student? No, he was at Oxford, I think. Right. Uh, but 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 Pat and Anne certainly were. And anyway, so okay, on to Cambridge, uh, on to the APU. On the, at the APU, uh, the Broadbent director, 
Poulton and Conrad were assistant directors. And then there was Alan Badley, Pet Rabbit, uh, Henry Schaffer, Derek Corcoran, uh, Bob Wilkinson, who worked on uh, uh, very early work on, e on uh, EEGs, um, Max Hamilton, who worked on tracking tasks. Uh, Alfred Leonard, uh, older man, um, so it was a, it was an interesting group of people, but what was interesting about them is that, one of the interesting things is that there was nobody doing any cognition, and <laughs> I, I tried to get a seminar going right from the beginning, mm -hmm. partly for my own education, because I, 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 like, I, I like talking to people about science and exchanging ideas and arguing and putting forward preposterous hypotheses and having them shot down and watching them, watching them disintegrate and picking up the pieces, putting them back together again. But they didn't understand <laughs> the APU what I was talking about uh, or why I was doing it. It was very interesting looking back. So when was that in terms of the... This is 1960. So some way into what people think of as the cognitive revolution in a... People sort of date that back to the 50s sometimes. I don't know if that... Or is this... It's, it's still getting going. It was still getting going. The only, the only diagram I remember which existed uh, was... A, Broadbent in perception and communication, where he had the parallel and serial system. Mm. That was it. Uh, and Treesman talked about dictionary units. And me and Logogens. Mm. The, the Americans who were doing equivalent work were talking about the relationship between probability and perception as if that was that was it as if the uh, as if the probabilities were the properties of the stimuli themselves I think would be the right way to put it yeah and so the, the, the idea of popping something in the head which uh, which wasn't biological mm. is uh, was a strange thing to have Anyway, bit by bit, I started trying to convert people. And once I started getting graduate students, it made life a bit easier. Uh, my, my next thing was, And uh, it came out. It sprang out of a conversation with with Conrad, um, who f whose focus was on work for the post office, uh, and uh, he, for example, had looked at um, dial codes and had looked at the effect of a response prefix on memory. So that is to say, 
at the time the post office were about to uh, were wondering whether or not it would be a good idea or, or what they what the problem if there'd be any major problems by putting the zero in front of of all non-local calls mm. and so there was a response uh, a, a response prefix and he said to me one day in coffee uh, coffee and tea were a major a major feature of the APU at the half an hour at uh, 10 o'clock and half an hour at, uh, uh, at half past four uh, uh, where people were sort of expected to go and talk to each other largely the conversations about house prices and cars of course they occasionally <laughs> talked about something else and he, he says to me yeah no, John I've been doing these experiments on memory and I can tell from the error curves whether or not the stimuli were acoustic or visual. So oh, that's interesting. Well, that means that that the processing must be before the confluence of the two, which means it must be in um, uh, and the, in the input side uh, and. Uh, So there must be something in the acoustic, in the acoustic input, uh, input flow, <coughs> which, which is there uh, to be, which is lasting and is there to be pulled out at the end of the list when you're recalling. Uh, that's interesting. I thought to myself, in that case, you could, you should be able to wipe it out by having something else in, and so that was. That, that little conversation over, over coffee led directly to the stimulus suffix experiments and thence to pre-categorical acoustic storage, mm -hmm. uh, which, which, has had a, which has had a tougher time uh, in terms of survival. Um, something you said, I can remember you talking to me about um, when I was doing my PhD and I'd done something with synthetic speech and you said, but that means it won't be processed like speech. And of course I went away and it, the, there are obviously some things about synthetic speech which work fine, but it doesn't, particularly then, 25 years ago, didn't have very good speech-like, voice-like characteristics. You didn't really hear a yeah. speaker, right. a talker. And that's actually turned out to be very meaningful in terms of like, brain systems that respond to information and you hear a talker there's as much response in different areas to the voicey aspect of what you're listening to. Yeah. And it's quite distinct from sort of um, word recognition processes, which can be a lot more, lot, care a lot less about what the, the stuff sounds like. And I've always gone back to your comment as, uh, which had come about from the, that, that suffix effect, if you changed it to an artificial, yeah. it didn't, didn't work. That's right. Um, and I... So I don't think, I mean, sometimes, you know, good ideas don't necessarily last for all sorts of reasons, but I don't, I think there was, quite, there was something going on there that was, remains, you know, something that's like still at the back of my mind. Yeah. It's important. Ah. Yeah, good. Of course, some, some of this stuff I've completely lost, lost touch with. No idea where, where it is. You're allowed to, I think. It's, yeah. a, it's like a great... <laughs> it, it is interesting as scientists, isn't it? The, the only... The only way any of our ideas have any currency is if 
people care to read our work <laughs> and maybe you know just that courtesy of kind of engaging with our ideas and maybe yeah. even picking it up in their own work yeah, so right. it's not you can't you're not guaranteed anything are you there's no no promise that says yes don't worry come back in 30 years you'll find this has had an influence people have no obligation to do that no no the only one which which certainly did have did have well did have an influence uh, no, I don't know how much how, how much I can claim direct responsibility that's that's peace centers mm. and every time i listen to a station announcement the next the next train will, <laughs> will be calling at blah 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 <laughs> think oh yes that's peace center adjusted <laughs> it's uh so it's entirely possible somebody listening might not know what peace centers are although obviously i consider them to be one of the more important things you've ever written about <laughs> um but because it's what i did my phd yes. on but it's it, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about your career. Maybe something that's I don't. Maybe it'd be much harder for somebody to achieve this now. But to be able to go from models of reading, features of speech recognition processes, and then P centers and P centers are basically perceptual centers, beats, things that give something a. If you hear somebody counting regularly, one, two, three, four, five, it's the P centers that are lined up. Yes. And that was such a great insight. Yeah. That it's not the same as the start of the sound. No, no. Yes, that that was yes for the for the benefit of the listener. The uh, this came about uh, when I was uh, programming some stimuli for for a colleague, uh, and um, we were the, these stimuli were digits, and he wanted uh, seven-digit strings. And uh, so I got canonical forms of these uh, of the of the, uh, of the ten digits, including zero, um, onto a computer, and wrote a little program which pulled them out uh, once uh, once every five hundred milliseconds, and they sounded dreadful. And so I took the program to pieces again and put it back together and tested it this way and that way and finally worked out uh, asked myself the question remember these are coming out regularly they're coming out every every 500 milliseconds there can be no doubt about that because if I pulled out if I repeated the same stimulus it was absolutely regular one 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 and if I had one five eight three two nine. It yeah. sounded dreadful, and so just I asked the question: When we hear something regular, something is happening. We hear digits regularly. When we say one five eight three two nine, they feel to me regular as I'm speaking them. They sound to you regular as you're listening to them. What is some sort of something is happening at equal intervals for each of these stimuli? But it needn't be the beginning it's going to be something else so then hacked out a solution uh, empirically that it had to be somewhere in um, in, in, in the in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the digit uh, after the vowel onset um, and uh, and that proved the uh, proved, proved the answer to uh, to the question of regularity, which could be used for all for all kinds of uh, all kinds of um, spoken stimuli, um, and uh, it's, it's 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 in a way it's a non 
it was an it was a purely empirical piece of work. Uh, so I think you you went on to make it. Uh, well, I think the only I mean to what make, make it more theoretical. The thing that's been for me, peace centers was sort of really interesting um, key that unlocked the a whole set of properties with speech and other sounds that they actually share in common because the exact same phenomena happened with musical instruments and I can remember yes. you pointing out to me that yeah. um, people learning to play the double bass commonly are really out of time until they've learned to coordinate when they make the they sound and lean, when it feels it happens. Yes, lean into the, lean yes. into the note, yes. And when I was a uh, let's say a confused teenager, um, I learned to play church bells, which have got a ridiculous oh, yes. delay between when you actually pull the string oh. and when you hear the bell ring. Wow. It's a tremendous, and it, of course you, you're just catastrophically bad at coordinating it with other people for months and years, or for my case forever. I never got good at it. Um, and presumably the size, of the, the size of the bell though are different. Exactly, they go at different speeds, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really... It, the other thing that I really like about peace centres, and it's taken me a very long time because I still fiddle around with it. I have a PhD student working on them now. Ah. I just I can't quite let it go. Um, is it kind of gives you that link to the fact that we don't only process speech for meaning. So when you hear rhythm in a sequence of spoken words or any musical sequence, yeah. that can be dissociated from the exact meaning of each of the words. It's um, so if you had a bar wa, they've got different p centers and they're different words, but actually the phonetic identity's got nothing to do with the p center. It's entirely to do with the shape of that sound. Yeah, and it actually seems to be quite an interesting. Um, it's sort of taken me off down a route of thinking a lot more about sensory motor processing of sound, which has been really useful to me. Yeah. and that's where p centers seem to sit. Mm. They seem to be more of this kind of perception production link in terms of um, less to do with recognition processes and more to do with how you would coordinate your own action along with that sequence of sounds that you're uh, listening to. Okay. Um, so at the moment, um, yeah, I've been, this isn't a podcast interviewing me, this is a podcast interviewing you, but it's still kind of floating out there and of course the other thing it buys you is it gives you an anchor point in a word that separates out the onset and the rhyme without you having to do any phoneme identification so it seems to be probably oh. it's a way of being you because know, you can hear rhythm or yeah, rhymes yeah. in a language you don't understand yeah, yeah, yeah. and peace centers seem to be getting at kind of the structural things in a sound that would let you hear that without you being able to recognize necessarily even what the phonemes are enough from me yes yeah, so yes, yeah, that, sounds, that sounds good. <laughs> uh. So you've covered word recognition, rhythm perception and production, <laughs> speech recognition, and done really seminal work in all of these areas. What what was next? Um, well, for me, headed re headed records, the the notion that uh, with autobiographical memory, basically you there's some aspects of what you store uh, you, is, is addressable but not retrievable and uh, the, the content of the memory uh, is retrievable though not directly addressable and uh, that's an idea I've been playing with and I'm still playing with actually I've used it as a, as a, as a basis of my account of what's happening with um, uh, 
what used to be called multiple personality disorder, what now is called dissociative identity disorder, and uh, which is a moderately contentious area to be working in. But w what I've found is that there are some people who are extremely amnesic from one personality state to another, uh, functionally defining a personality state, if, if one likes, by uh, in terms of what answer the person gives if you say, what's your name? Mm. Uh, in one personality state they may say Kate, in another personality state the same person would say Anne. Um, and if you teach something to Kate, Anne doesn't know anything about it, and they've uh, looked at uh, whether this could be thought of in terms of a strategy, uh, and the way one gets around that is by using an interference task, uh, where the the norm would be interference, mm. and you wouldn't be able to get out of the interference merely by uh, choosing it as a uh, deciding to do so as a strategy. If I ask you if you can rem remember something, say no, I have no idea. But if I present you with uh, uh, with some words to remember, and then later on uh, present the another personality state with similar words to remember and then mm. later on ask you to uh, basically sort out sort them out uh, you're not going to be able to do it unless you're dissociated yeah uh, and uh, why I was interested in that was that this the, the it was something I could account for without having to postulate any any new uh, structural yeah. uh, p uh, components to the to the retrieval system all one had to do is to say that the that the since we know that that context has an effect on word retrieval uh, on, on retrieval of autobiographical memories mm. uh, and uh, on retrieval of most things uh, so the but it's not absolute, it's just probabilistic. You're more likely to remember something correctly yeah. if you're in the same place. Um, I always think about Alan Badley's work uh, with Duncan Gordon on divers. Yeah. Uh, if you learn something under the water, you remember it better when you're under the water than you do when you're on, on land and vice versa. Uh, but that's probabilistic, not absolute. Mm. So all one had to do is to turn the... Uh, uh, turn the parameters of the system up uh, to the top and uh, have the lack of retrieval, uh, uh, the, the dependence of the retrieval on the context to be absolute and the mm. context is a notion of self, so uh, using self as a, as a means of retrieval, an aid to retrieval, as a contextual determinant of retrieval. So that's what led me into that particular area. Can I ask you a couple of general questions, or is there anything else scientific that yeah. you'd like to mention? So uh, I had one um, sort of point about 
well, I suppose three general questions. Um, first, about how you're you're feeling about kind of the role of a scientist, not only as somebody who's doing the science, but you're also you ha you get and gain more and more responsibility for other scientists working with you and sort of those. I was very struck a few years ago by a talk Carolyn Patterson gave when um, the former APU had managed to get itself in a situation with no female scientists whatsoever and they had a meeting where they got a lot of female scientists who used to be at the unit to come and talk about it. And Carolyn Patterson, who I think had just recently retired, she said that she you had asked her to give a talk instead of you giving the talk you'd asked her to give it although you were the more senior person and you'd been invited but it was work you'd done together and you'd said to her you do the talk because if I do it people will assume that this is my work and we've done it together and I thought that was a very very nice example and it was a, you know and she made the point of how important it was that you'd done that but that was probably ah. one brief decision on your part that had a really big impact on her, she feels. Ah. And I don't know, it's hard to say because it sometimes just feels like you're doing your job, but if you had a kind of philosophy behind that kind of thing. I mean, more often I've seen people go, do you know what, I think I'd better do the talk instead. <laughs> I think, you know, let me do it. It's the off, in my experience, more often the way around it can go. No, well, what, what, what can I think of? That's, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, Carolyn, Carolyn's never mentioned this to me since. Uh, you know, why would you necessarily? <laughs> it's, you know. uh, but certainly I've, I've never been uh, excessively proprietorial, <laughs> I think. Um, I, re I remember there's, there's a whole, whole stack of experiments. I had uh, students, third year students in in psychology in Cambridge, running the experiments that were the basis of my rewrite of Logogen system, uh, and uh, people were a little surprised when I put their names first on the papers. Mm. Um, it just seemed to me that it was a unique opportunity for them. They're not going to do anything. It's not going to happen again. So. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make it doesn't really make any difference to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there was that. And there's the other point of view. Um, I don't know whether. I mean, on 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 the gender side. Uh, when I went went on, what we haven't talked about is my going on, to. Uh, and leaving the APU. Um, I'd had 22 years in Cambridge, which, to be honest, is rather a dreary place. I stuck it out for five. I couldn't bear it any yeah. longer. I'm from Blackburn. <laughs> That's <it> enough. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, I couldn't get I couldn't get out. Uh, there was a it's a real problem because mm. the only the only way up was to take a head of department job, which would involve you in undergraduate teaching. I wasn't interested in undergraduate teaching. I didn't know anything about it either. Mm. Um, and uh, there were a couple of possibilities. I nearly went to nearly went to America a couple of times, but they didn't work out for various odd reasons. But then there was this job at uh, in, in in well 
the MRC, new MRC unit, the uh, um, developmental psychology unit was closing because, uh, and now my age is telling, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> So again, you have to know every single unit's reason for closing. No, no, <laughs> I remember why. It's, it's a reti retirement of, right. of, of a significant, very significant person uh, who's... Uh, yeah. It'll come to it. It'll come to it. Um, O'Connor, Neil O'Connor. Of course. Yes. Um, you see, the, the, existing, the, the existing developmental unit, which was headed by Neil O'Connor, was closing because he was retiring, but the MRC wanted to uh, have a replacement. And I thought, well, this is a, a wonderful opportunity. People were extremely surprised uh, at when I got it because I'd not, not, never done any developmental work, of course, and uh, didn't really, to be honest, know a great deal about it. Uh, but what I did know about was the science of psychology, yeah. and I knew how to recognize, I thought, a good, good scientist one, mm. and I saw one. And I had the, the wonderful possibility of working with Uta, who I talked to extensively when I was thinking of applying for this job. She was very supportive, very enthusiastic, and, uh, and she was indispensable for the uh, for the way the unit, um, where the unit developed, mm. and uh, so there was there was her, and there was then Annette Conlot Smith. So I had two very strong, mm. very strong women who were uh, in in the unit, uh, which was uh, extremely satisfactory, I must say. And it really did sort of punch above its weight as a unit. Some really big ideas seem to come out of it. I can remember seeing Alan Leslie talk about theory of mind yes. um, when I was doing my PhD, but the, the kind of buzz that came out of the CDU was Wonder, extraordinary. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Well, I was, I, was able to, I was able to run it in a way that I wanted to, mm. which involved, <coughs> for example, uh, for the first two or three years, uh, uh, two theoretical, two, two seminars, in-house seminars a week mm -hmm. uh, of at least two hours, where basically everybody who was there told the rest of us what the, uh, everything they knew, yeah. um, whether they thought it was important or not. Um, and that's, that's how one of the, uh, the, the key the key ideas came out in my version of the of the way the world worked at any rate uh, which was that Alan had already told us about um, uh, ex the expression razor and uh, which is which which um, Oh, dear me. When you have, you have verbs, of, verbs of the form of uh, intend, mm. uh, desire, wish, uh, 
you can put any proposition inside uh, as the uh, predicate. You can believe that the moon is made of green cheese, uh, uh, even though the moon isn't made of green cheese. Mm. Uh, or you can wish that the moon was made of green cheese, knowing that it's not made of green cheese. Uh, and he talk, talked about that. And um, then, and he said, oh yes, there, there is another word. The word pretend works in the same way. And Uta, who'd been talking about, who talked about autism, mm. said, oh, that's odd. Yes, yeah. you know that autistic people uh, can't pretend. Mm. And from that sprang the idea, uh, you could almost see it growing in the room, mm. that the way of way of testing uh, uh, testing Allen's notion was by giving pretend uh, sorry, by giving theory of mind experiments to uh, to autistics mm. and the idea that if they couldn't uh, if they, uh, they couldn't pretend because they didn't have expression raisers. If they didn't have expression raisers, they wouldn't be able to solve the theory of mind tasks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it turned out to be beautifully true. Mm. And uh, so that was that was I think that was the uh, the best the best example of uh, of, of a, a theoretical seminar. Uh, Proving to be a, a a good way of doing a good way of doing science. I feel it's something we've let slide a bit as a community because yeah. um, when I was at the APU, there still were sort of um, theoretical seminars. They you know, used to find them quite stressful because people quite often got quite cross. But um, I now miss them because they're very hard to imagine it actually happening. We kind of there's a lot more sort of separate endeavours going on, a bit more um, you know some, not quite silos, but you know sort of. A uh, lot, lot less crosstalk, and of course, as soon as you do start talking to a colleague, you realise there's loads of stuff that you benefit from in the discussion. But I think it would be good to kind of try and find the time and the day to force that to happen again. We weren't spending all our time doing online training for on GDPR and things. So, <laughs> don't, don't you don't want to know? You don't want to know? I don't want no, to no, know. no, 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 no. This is just <laughs> cling to the thought of retirement when you think about these things. Right. So I had a couple more questions. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I really, really like, if we jump to the 1970s and cognitive psychology has become a lot more kind of, uh, you know, enriched, there's a great deal more of it, it's it's a thing, there are textbooks. Alan Yule write that, wrote that fantastic introduction to something, a special issue based on an, um, an attention perception production meeting, I can't remember, but it's got the one that you can't play 20 questions with nature and win. And I know he's using that partly to say, oh, it's really, you know, we need sort of a more a model to be, you know, to work with. But one of the other points he makes in that is just all these separate endeavours using different words, doing different things, it's not going to add up yeah. on its own. And I sometimes wonder if things have got any better. Yeah. <laughs> if he was telling yours to go to a meeting now, would he go away from it thinking, yeah, they've, they've sorted that, I, I can I can rest in peace? Yes. I, I don't think so. No. Um, yes, to... to Add the 
a specific example people use to ask the question is perception serial or parallel uh, which just seems such a silly way of expressing things yeah yeah is it a or is it b like that's no <laughs> no so it's going to be all of them yes yeah um well i, I said i haven't i haven't followed followed it up too much uh, i must say over the years though i do i do read the psychologist and i i look at the the titles of seminars here uh and I haven't seen the title of a seminar which has drawn me in. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think largely because uh, so many, so many of them are dependent on uh, on the brain and, and, and scanning. And I, uh, I have have held to uh, a certain indifference. As to what the uh, what the anatomical um, substrate might be, uh, on the, in the belief that the that the brain is a uh, sort of like a Turing machine, it can it can it can do any task that you set it, and can so it'll be configured in a particular way because of the way the particular environment happens to be, and uh, it's not going to tell me much much more about cognition that is about what the brain is doing in relation to the outside world which would include other individuals mm. uh, or indeed one's image of oneself um, uh, these are the questions of interest to psychology uh, and if I know that a particular part of the brain is involved in doing a particular task uh, that's not going to help me to understand what the nature of the task is, what the processing does. I suppose there was a there was a feeling for a while that somehow it would be the other way around. If you find well, this bit of the brain is involved in all these different tasks, does that tell us something about what those tasks have in common? Like maybe we could get a set of other constraints from the brain that might help us theorise. That didn't seem to happen. I think partly because to whisper this, but it, it the sort of modelling approach seems to have crashed hard at some point towards the end of the 90s partly I suspect because the people who were interested in doing that are the ones who got into brain scanning just started doing something else I could be wrong on that that's my perspective but I think also because oh, yeah. we just ended up doing lots and lots of little experiments with brains instead of people in the lab and there's still that kind of new all issue about you know kind of just lots of independent things not much crosstalk so I, I almost sometimes feel like psychologists aren't that interested in perhaps having a general theory, you know, we people periodically do put them forward, but we we seem less comfortable with that than, say, physicists are. Physicists are fine with a, you know, general theory. We tend to be a bit more, I don't know. Oh, I think a general theory, but, but it's, it's, it's theories of all sorts. Not only that, physicists grow their theories. They're, mm. they're happy to take on somebody else's theory and develop it, add something to it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> or, or put two, two theories together to make something bigger. And there's a certain reluctance among psychologists to to adopt other people's ideas. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect yeah. it's. I mean, there's probably all sorts of unknowns that contribute to this, but it's a. 
having worked in different labs and worked in a lab with somebody who had a sort of general theory, it was interesting seeing the resistance that you would continuously meet um, for sort of being part of that. It was, it was interesting. I've got one last question for you and then I will let you go. Is that okay? So one of the things that um, is important about, I think, being a scientist, and I think you epitomise this as well, is that it's not only about being in the lab doing science, doing science all the time. It, there's another, you know, you're allowed to have and should have a more rich and varied set of interests that contribute to that. And something that you've always seemed to be very interested in is performance. Is that true? Have, have, yeah. you, you've, have you always been interested in sort yeah. of a, another world where you go and do something totally different? Yes, always. Yeah. Um, at the start of start, I was interested in theatre. Um, when I got to the APU and was working in Cambridge, yes, I I, I, did, I did continue actually. Uh, while I was at the uh, APU in the first few years, I played. Both uh, Shylock and uh, uh, Faustus, both of them. But the trouble was that the that the rest the, the, the company wasn't all that good, and I found that it was a bit um, very unsatisfactory uh, in that context. Uh, and so what I then did was was sing a lot more. And I started singing folk songs. I started writing my own stuff, and uh, yeah, my, my own stuff is actually available on on website, on my Excellent. website. Can I just ask? When I we had the um, the fortieth anniversary of the unit when I was there, and they had some film running. I think about the post office, oh. and it had this absolutely crazy music running in the background. Somebody said you'd composed. Yeah. <laughs> there was a projector just looping this film in a room with this music playing the whole time, and it was like some sort of art experience. <laughs> you'd probably go and have a chemically induced <laughs> afternoon in there. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's running through my head now. Isn't that interesting? Gosh, <laughs> that was amazing. It was um, very, very simple music. What did you find? What do you find appealing about getting engaged in that side? Because I think it's a very common trope that scientists are just married to the job and we don't do anything else. We're not. We certainly people might not go. Well, hobby number one for this scientist would be theatre. <laughs> <laughs> um. I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea whether I don't think it's gip. It's generally true. Uh, I think it's a. It's got something to do with my own background. Mm. Uh, but it's important to have something, isn't it? I think it's important to have something. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be bridge or, or golf or uh, anything, but to, to something to get out of, uh, to get out of the lab. Probably useful to have something which is intellectually challenging in a different way, yeah. not just physical. Yeah. Um, and I used to I used to play sports, uh, but for different reasons. Uh, and I think I think I've got you. I've, I've taken up an hour of your time now. So just what is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't? I was, uh, well, one, one thing that I was going to going to throw in is one. One of the things about the APU, which was very useful, was that we did have uh, the applied side of things to uh, 
uh, to anchor us. Um, and I, th I think when the applied went out of it, uh, <laughs> the brain came into it, and the uh, relationship to, to everyday behavior uh, became, uh, became uh, rather more remote. I've, I've mentioned already how uh, Conrad's work on telephone dialing uh, le led to pre-categorical acoustic storage. Um, I think that that certainly some of the problems in um, uh, that that Broadbent and Poulton and Co had met in uh, communication systems, decision-making systems in the in the forces led. Uh, I think particularly Broadbent to mm. develop some of his ideas. Uh, I'm not sure whether. I directly had any other um, inputs from the applied work, though I, I was able to uh, apply psychological theories to to applied problems. Mm. Uh, I give give a what give one example. There was a um, a query from an army. Uh, uh, helicopter uh, training uh, division. Uh, they're having having trouble with communications, and um, so I went down to uh, I think it was Middle Wallop or somewhere like that uh, to have a look, and uh, was flown around in a helicopter by the ace who was showing off. It was very exciting. Uh, and it, anyway, it turned out that the um, that they had three communication channels. There was the Army Tactical, there was Army uh, uh, Air Control, and there was the Civilian uh, Air Control. Uh, so there's three speech channels, and there were three um, uh, alarm channels: one for uh, engine failure, uh, one for uh, small arms fire, and one for approaching a high tension cable. But all of these were presented as we would now think of it as binaurally, mm. and. Uh, there was a lot of, of course, as you know, there would be an enormous amount of interference. Yeah. And I was able to say to them, ah, well, just what you could do is put one of these into one ear, one of them into another ear, yeah. to the other ear, and the, the third channel in both ears, and you'd have interference-free presentation. Yeah. And so I was able to use something which was commonplace in psychology yeah. to solve a, a, what was a, a fairly serious problem Serious problem for yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for the uh, for the real world. And that was very satisfactory. I can imagine. It's it's uh, I back in the nineties. I used to work for the Open University, and we had a, you know, you give the students all these materials. They're supposed to listen to things and watch TV programs and read books. But um, one of the things they had to listen to was an interview with Donald Broadbent talking about applied psychology. And I wish I'd kept that tape, because yeah. it was quite a strong argument for exactly like you say that. 
theory being affected by applied problems and then being able to take those theories that you've developed and take them back to the problem you know this end this cycle of mm. and it's we you lose a lot if you lose that link and i think it's interesting that people like you know some of my colleagues here like great reese and vincent walsh and to some extent myself have been you know for different reasons starting to engage more with applied problems partly because of practical issues and made it a, a something that we're able to do but also i think it is really important I yeah. think it, it really it really matters. You're right. Broadbent was right. Mm -hmm. So we start with John Morton being right about logogens. We can end with him being right about the importance <laughs> of applied research. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Well, I hope we can, hope we can dig something out of that. <laughs> it should be, I think, probably. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.